several years ago, <clears throat> two of my friends called me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them Freddie and Mary. They called me, and um, we were just kind of catching up. We hadn't talked in a while, and, and they began to tell me about their church. Now, I know that church well. I've never served uh, as pastor of that church, but I, I knew it well a long time ago, and and they were talking about the good old days. There were decades ago when I was a teenager, in fact, that church was uh, blowing and growing and going, and it was, uh, man, it was the happening place. It demanded a lot, a lot of uh, Freddie and Mary. It seems like they were always building something, and there was so much going on. There were de lots of demands on their time, so Freddie and Mary spent a lot of time volunteering at the church. Their church was very demanding. But on this phone call, they were lamenting that uh, their church didn't demand a lot from them anymore. They weren't building anything anymore, and there were fewer things at the church that demanded their time. And they were longing for the days when their church demanded a great deal from them. Their church was now on a gradual but steady decline, and they longed for the days when they really had to work hard for their church. This church demands a great deal of you. I know that it does. Some of you were around, lots of you were around when you built the, the life center, the gathering place, the student center, and the offices, and I know that uh, that demanded a great deal of you. Some of you are still giving toward the renovation of our mosaic, the, the cosmic Christ mosaic out there, and and I know a lot of you spend a lot of time volunteering because there's so many things going on. Your church demands a great deal uh, from you. But I think we all ought to thank God that it does because the alternative, a church that doesn't demand a lot of us, is just not nearly as much fun as one that does. A few moments ago with Rebecca, we read from First Chronicles 29, which is the preparation for the building of the temple. Those are the words of David. And of course, Solomon, his son, would complete the temple. But these were the days when they were just gathering the resources to build that magnificent temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And I want to talk about our building, renovation and construction program, in light of the building of that temple from First Chronicles 29. First of all, what is the justification for such a big project? What is the justification for spending $1.6 million on a, on a piece of art, on a big mosaic, a mural, that mosaic out front, the cosmic Christ? What is the justifi justification for $7 million for renovation and construction of children's area? Well, I, I believe there is a good justification. Number one, this building is itself an act of worship. First Chronicles 29, verse 1, this comes before what we read. David says, this palatial structure, speaking of the temple, this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. And in verse 16, which we, re we read, it says, Lord our God, we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name. It's good to remember that the church is the people. The church is not the building. We are the church. It's good to remember that God doesn't live 
exclusively in this building. He is loose in the world. But this, these are holy halls. These are, this is a sacred structure. This is an important building. And when we build and when we, when we do the best we can to maintain the building, it is an act of worship. Lots of churches don't even have buildings. You don't have to have a building to be a church. This morning, we had a guest from D.C. I brought him in here to see this building. He said, he was wowed. He said, do you all own this building? Said, That's a very D.C., Washington, D.C. kind of question because lots of people in D.C. don't own their buildings. Lots of churches don't. You don't have to have a building to be a church. But when you do, when you do, to make sure it is as excellent as it can be is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Second, it is a tool for ministry. A building like this is a tool for ministry. Every week, there are hundreds of people who come into this building. From our, I'm talking about our Huntsville neighbors. From FCA uh, to BSF to CBS to ESL, from Scouts to the Korean School, hundreds of people come here. Last January... There were 700 of our neighbors who worked for the government when the government was shut down. Remember that? There were 700 who came, and they got assistance in our gathering place and in the Life Center. And MSNBC did a live feed from our gathering place because of what was going on. Every Christmas, the Living Christmas Tree, we pack this place for, for multiple performances of the Living Christmas Tree. And invite out, we invite our neighbors this is one of the reasons we are church at the heart of the city is because of our building. So we're talking about a, making this building a, a greater, more effective tool for ministry. We're talking about children's area that screams that children are important to us. Now, I know that every child doesn't need a fancy play area and new bathrooms and all that stuff. When we lived in Nigeria, we, uh, we, uh, the place we worshipped was in a leper colony. So everybody in the church was uh, either had leprosy or had been sent by their families. When the family sent them away, they usually sent children with them. So everybody in our church was either a leper or a child taking care of a leper. Our building was very simple. It was a mud building with plaster on the outside. The pews were benches, some of them with backs and some of them not, rather rickety benches. The ceiling dipped low over the pulpit, so I had to stand sideways when I preached. And the children had Sunday school under a tree. Not every place in Nigeria is like that. There's some nice church buildings in Nigeria. But let's be honest. If somebody were to build a, a mud building in Huntsville with plaster on the outside and invite you to sit every Sunday on rickety benches, you probably wouldn't want to go. Is that not true? And you probably would not want your children to have Sunday school under a tree. We live in the land of Chick-fil-A and Chuck E. Cheese, and their buildings scream, children are important to us. This building is a tool for ministry. We want it to, we, I believe if, if any place ought to scream that children are important. It should be the house of God. So we're saying this tool for ministry, we want it to be an effective, more effective tool than it already is. This is a, our building is an act of worship. It is a tool for ministry, and it is a testimony. This building points people to our Father and Creator. I'm going to read to you an email that I got on November the 17th of 2017. I know it's... Um, it's a little bit long, and, and 
since you can't see it, it's, you're going to have to really pay attention, but please listen to the entire email. So I got this email from uh, Jeremy Crow, a man I never have met. Jeremy explained that his father, Doug, had passed away in the MICU at Huntsville Hospital at 1035 that morning. And he said, it was encouraging to see your steeple standing tall each night over Huntsville. Craig also included the following message from his cousin, Courtney Madden, who, again, whom I don't know, who had sat with Doug's family as Doug's life gradually ebbed. She had parked on the top. If you've been to the parking deck at, the Hunts, at Huntsville Hospital, the top where there's no, nothing above it, just sky. Here's what she wrote. As we exited the building, this is after Doug had died. As we exited the building, we viewed a site that could easily have been overlooked. What we saw, taller than any surrounding buildings, almost standing guard in the skyline, was one lone church steeple. It was placed delicately in front of a beautiful sunset. A subtle reminder that our God is bigger than any heartache we face. When we are drowning in woes, he is standing tall like this steeple waiting to pluck us up from the roaring waves that try to suck us under. And no matter what, you can find beauty in times of hardship if you just know where to look. This week, the steeple was a great source of comfort as I gathered with aunts and cousins and bid adieu to my uncle Doug. Then Jeremy, Doug's father, Concluded, may God continue to bless you and your church so that you may continue blessing others. This building that is that I didn't pay anything for is a testimony to our Creator and Father. This building is an act of worship. It is a tool for ministry, uh, and is, it's a testimony. That what I, that's what I think justifies the renovation and construction of our children's area. Second, let's talk about a, a joyful generosity. We read a, a moment ago in verse 14, but who am I and who are the, my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Verse 17 reads, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. That's a, a joyful generosity. Generations is about, it's a, this campaign is about generosity. You know, we don't do fundraisers. and Lots of good churches do, and I'm not dismissing that or disparaging that, but we don't, we don't do bazaars and you know, we don't do bingo and we don't to, to raise money and we don't, you know, sometimes our, our, our kids on Wednesday nights, like the boys will bust the tables uh, to raise money for a mission project or the, like, you know, the kids will bake cookies and we'll buy cookies for missions and, and the students will do projects to, to, to fund a mission trip. But, but when it comes to the operation of our church, we don't have bingo and bazaars, and we don't, we don't rent pews. Maybe some of you have been to those old colonial churches where there'd be those boxes, you know, and, um, and there'd be somebody's name in it where they'd rent their pews. You know, if you think somebody gets upset now if somebody's sitting in their pew, you, what if you'd rented it? And you're like, hey, excuse me, but I've got the receipt right here. I rented this. I wonder if we rented pews, which ones would go for the highest? I think it's probably you guys in the back would probably be the ones that have to pay the most for those pews. But they stopped renting pews because, you know, renting pews is not a good motivation. It's not a good way to, it's not necessarily a joyful generosity. This is about, this campaign is about more than 
than finances. Now, I know that architects and contractors and builders, they, they don't take pledges. They take checks. I get that. But, but, but for us internally, it's about our hearts, and it's about what's going on in our hearts. Sam Maxwell is um, our resident with, with, that works with young adults. And he had a conversation with a couple of millennials. Those are the really young adults. And he said, I think you need to know about this. And when, I, when he told me the story, I said, would they let me tell the story? And on my behalf, he asked them. And, and they wrote me uh, what I'm about to read to you. And I want you to listen carefully uh, to the, the story, the testimony of two very young adults uh, in our church. We weren't sure if we would be able to support the Generations campaign when we first learned about it since we are in a season of grad school and job hunting. However, the day it was announced, we decided to take a more intentional look at our spending and make a budget to look at how we could possibly contribute even a small amount. Not only have we been able to cut out a lot of excess spending to make space for supporting generations. We have also realized that we can start saving for some important purchases that we originally thought weren't sure were within our reach. We feel God led us to make FBC our church home in part because it would be a Christ-centered environment in which our future children could learn and grow. Supporting generations now makes that possible for us and many other families later. I know there are lots of us older folks who wonder if the younger folks are going to be faithful financially. Boy, I'm really encouraged by this testimony from a couple of our wonderful millennials. There is a justification, I believe, for this campaign for $7 million. I, it's, this, is a, this is an act of worship. It's a tool for ministry, and it is a testimony to our neighbors. And this is about joyous generosity. We, I hope when you come forward next week, it will be just a, a, pro, a personal celebration. But let's talk specifically now about the Generations Campaign. And the reason I chose 1 Chronicles 29 is because it has been, if you will, the, the, the roadmap for us in this campaign. It began with David. David, at the beginning of, chap, of, 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 verse, of chapter 29, when they're beginning to gather resources to build a temple. He said, here's what I'm going to give. Now, I'm not the king, but it was important. Our, our campaign consultant said it's important that you tell people what you and Carrie are going to do because you need to not ask them to do what you're unwilling to do. And so I told you that Carrie and I are going for three years to double our tithe. We're going to give a tenth of our income, which is just my income. She doesn't work, brings in nothing. But I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter about that. So there I go again. I know, I know, I know. But so we're going to give a, you know, a tenth of our income as we always do to God through this church that we love. And we're going to help continue to support some missionaries that we help support. And then for three years, we're going to double our tithe and give it to the Generations Campaign. So that, that's where the temple began was with David saying, here's what we're going, I'm going to give. And then it says the leaders gave. He asked leaders of the nation to... to say what to pledge, if you will, what they were going to give. And verse 
9 says, The people of Israel rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for their leaders had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. So, I asked our leaders um, to, to make a pledge. Now, we invited everybody. We put it in print. We made announcements and said, anybody is welcome as part of this advanced commitment. But, but I, I, I spoke to our ministerial staff, and, and I spoke to our deacons and others, and I said, I, I ask you, kind of like David asked those leaders, to make an advanced commitment. So before, before everybody else comes forward with their commitment cards, would you please say this is what you're going to give? And so I'm, we, I've been holding this uh, all week. We had an event a week ago, Friday, and uh, people brought their commitment cards. There have been 150 uh, pledges made. So 150 leaders in our church have said, this is what we're going to do for the Generations campaign. And I think, uh, of course, I, I think you ought to know what it is. So out of 150 pledges, remember our goal is 7 million. So out of 150 pledges, our leaders have pledged just over $2 million for, I'm kidding, it's not that, it's, not, it's more than 2 million, it's more than 2 million. 150 pledges have come in from your leaders and we have pledged over $3 million toward the 7 million, I'm kidding, it's not $3 million. 150 pledges, and this could have been from singles or from couples or from families, 150 Pledges from leaders have come in, and toward a goal of $7 million, we already have pledges of just over $4 million. Isn't that great? But I'm just kidding. But what I'm about to tell you is the honest truth. I ain't kidding about what I'm about to tell you. Toward a goal of 7 million, 150 pledges have come in. And this is the exact figure of those 150 pledges. 5 million, 12,220 dollars. Now that's worth an applause. So our leaders have given generously and joyfully, and we can see the finish line, but I have a warning for you. And I thought, I wish I had thought about this earlier. I thought about it after the 815 service. During Sunday school, I thought about this. A few years ago, there was a Pac-12 um, track meet. And I remembered seeing the video. I wish I would thought about it earlier. I don't know if it was a mile or a 440 or 880. I don't know. All it showed was the final stretch Tanjay Pepio of Oregon University was far in the lead, way ahead of everybody else. And as he headed toward the finish line, the people in the stands began to cheer wildly. And he was thinking, man, this is pretty cool. So he started doing this. Yeah, 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 come on, cheer, yeah. And he, and he, he slowed up because he could see the finish line. He could hear everybody cheering. So he was, he was really getting into it and getting into it. What he didn't realize was that the reason they were cheering was Marin Simon of the University of Washington was coming right up behind him. And while Mr. Pepio was doing this, Mr. Simon passed him and beat him by seven-tenths of a second. Let's not be Mr. Pepio, right? 
I know that I th- when I heard that, when I heard that, Allison Hoskins uh, texted me on Saturday to tell me the, the amount pledged on Friday night, and I started crying when I saw it. Carrie thought our dog Gracie had died or something. And <laughs> she sat beside me on the couch, and I showed her uh, the amount. But let's not do that. We can see the finish line. But we need you. We need everybody. Remember, our goal is 100% participation. And those pledges, Allison has told me, I haven't seen a one, but Allison has told me that they're, you know, they're from lesser amounts to greater amounts. And whatever you believe God tells you to give, we, we want you to do that. We can see the finish line, but we can't get there without you. There is a justification for this generations campaign. This building is an act of worship. It's a tool of ministry, and it's a testimony to our neighbors. Our leaders have already pledged to give generously, and I hope they're giving joyously. And this is, we come now to a really important moment, you know, in the life of our, in the history of our church. I would even go so far as to say this is a defining moment for us. I love the story that um, Roy Angel told. He told about, uh, excuse me, told about the halfway house. And I actually told this to you when I was interim because I thought it was applicable then. It's applicable now too. There's in, in the German Alps, there's a mountain. It's not like Mount Everest where only, you know, professional climbers climb. It's a day climb. It's a place where, you know, tourists or, you know, amateur climbers can climb in a day and get back by evening. But halfway up the mountain, there's what they call the halfway house. And the guy who works there wrote, my halfway house is not a happy place and my job is not a happy job. And here's why. He said, people will come, they're halfway through the climb when they get to the halfway house and their muscles are aching and their, their lungs are burning and, and they come in and they, they warm, up, warm up by the fire and they get a cup of hot cocoa and, and they sit down in the chair and they take their backpacks off and they relax. They rest for the rest of the journey. And he said, there's a big plate glass window that overlooks the valley from which they'd come. And so they always go over there. He said, and they always look down in the valley and they ooh and ah at the, at the scenery and they congratulate each other on how far they've come. And then after a while, the guide will tell everybody, it's time to strap on your backpacks and tighten the laces on your shoes and boots and it's time for the rest of the climb. And the guy who runs the halfway house said, inevitably, about half the people will look over at the fire and at their mug of hot cocoa, and he said they would look up the rest of the climb, and it seemed so steep and so far. And about half of them will say, you know, we're just going to wait here. The other half, the more hearty souls will strap on their backpacks and tighten up the laces to their shoes and boots. And the others will watch. There were windows that faced 
the rest of the mountain. And either through those windows or outside, the guy who ran the halfway house said that people will watch as, as the other climbers continue until they're mere specks. Then he said, almost always, someone will announce. They're there at the top. And when that happens, he said, it's, it's almost like a, a cloud of gloom settles over those who remained at the halfway house. And they pass the time singing and telling stories until the others come from the top. And they come into the halfway house and they're high-fiving and slapping each other on the back and talking about what a great climb it was and how excited they were. And, and those who remained in the halfway house are miserable. This church is has a wonderful history, and when we walk to the window and look back through 210 years, boy, the scenery is breathtaking, and the stories are inspiring. But every once in a while, we reach something of a halfway house where we decide, are we just going to stay here and rest, or are we going to strap on our backpacks and tighten up the laces on our boots and keep climbing, and this is just one of those moments. Ken Miedema is um, a Christian musician artist who's been here a number of times. And I don't know if he's ever heard uh, that story about the halfway house. But he did write something that seems uh, appropriate. He wrote, uh, <clears throat> will you stay where you are? Or will you reach for a star? It just, seems, it just seems like a question for us. He wrote, this can be victory's hour. Claim his grace. Claim his power. Stay where you are. Or reach for a star. So even when I'm old and gray, O oh Lord, do not forsake me until I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Our hymn of invitation is an insert in your bulletin. If you'd find that, 